Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a man who I came across through great friend of the pod, Danny Bowman, as he appeared on the same Lad Bible roundtable discussion on body dysmorphia. George Mycock is a mental health advocate for awareness of muscle dysmorphia and the founder of mental health organisation MyoMinds. MyoMinds' mission is to demystify mental health for exercisers and athletes and to create an understanding future for the exercising community. Through research, public talks and their podcast, they work with universities, schools and other public institutions to change the conversation and accomplish their mission. In this episode, we discuss George's experience of muscle dysmorphia, which some listeners may know by the term bigorexia. Muscle dysmorphia itself is a form of body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, which is defined by, quote, being preoccupied by worries that one's body is too small or not muscular enough, despite having a normal build, or in many cases, an objectively extremely buff physique. It can cause that person to create obsessive rituals, behaviours and a mindset that can cause serious psychological distress and can put that person in extreme danger physically and mentally at its worst. George began experiencing muscle dysmorphia after he suffered a spinal injury when he was 13 years old, whilst he was playing rugby, a sport he loved and which he had built his identity around. He was then told never to play rugby again and was signed off school for a year. After he returned, he suffered an identity crisis and began exercising and bodybuilding heavily in order to rebuild his identity. Unfortunately, through this, he developed MD, which hasn't been officially diagnosed, and eventually got to the point where he became suicidal and was only saved because by a coincidental miracle, one of his best friends happened to visit his house that day and she supported him, listened to him and encouraged him to seek professional support. Thankfully, he did that worked through the issues the MD had given him and has now changed his life. He's founded Maya Minds and has done some brilliant advocacy work, including the Lab Bible discussion we mentioned earlier, and has also appeared on Miles Nazaire's Channel 4 documentary on muscle dysmorphia, as well as many other pieces of work we're going to discuss. In this episode, we discuss his mental health journey, from avid rugby player to obsessive bodybuilder and now mental health advocate. We talk about how he's built his self-esteem pyramid through therapy, what vulnerable narcissism in air quotes is, and how we can spot the signs that someone may be experiencing muscle dysmorphia so we can intervene early before it reaches crisis point like George did. So this is how my conversation with the legend George Mycock went. 
George, welcome to the Just Check In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It's great to have another great man fighting the good fight for other men in your sphere and for mental health more generally for men. We've both got fairly funny names, so I'm slightly worried this Riverside FM recording might burst into flames or implode during the course of this podcast. But first of all, mate, how are you on this Saturday morning? I am good. Yeah, it's nice not being the only one with the awkward name. It's so funny, whenever like some podcasts or things I do, they'll read out your name and they read out your whole name. And it's always yeah. funny... Like, I've had a few times where obviously the person who's interviewing me, this is the first Feels time awkward. they've seen my life. <laughs> they, they well, it's the first time they've seen it's my, my last name. It's my name, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they literally, they go, they go, George, my cock. And then uh, <laughs> they just, I'm just like, yeah, you had a real like, internal battle there for a second. But uh, yeah, oh. I'm good. I am, I'm a bit ill. So apologize to the listeners for my nasally voice, but I was ill before and we had to postpone it. I didn't want to postpone again. So I'm going to power true through gent. today. You're a true gent, mate. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine growing up with this name in the South, mate. It's a northern name. My dad's northern, so when he grew up, he had three cockers in his year. I grew up in East London with this name. Absolute horrific, horrific horror story. But anyway, <laughs> that's a trauma that I've discussed many a time on different pods. We've got <laughs> loads to talk about, mate, and I'm really pleased to give my minds and your story a platform. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? Let's do it. We're going to start your podcast, mate, by diving into your mental health journey. So take me back to your early life in Staffordshire teenagers and looking back were there any early mental health experiences who's the George we meet here when I was a kid I, I think I think I've struggled with my mental health for a very long time I think as a kid I had a very strange childhood I used to live on a zoo when I was a kid so it was a very weird upbringing anyway my mom and dad both worked for a zoo so I literally lived with like animals all around me a very strange it's like Dr. Doolittle <laughs> It's it's well. There's a movie called We Bought a Zoo that I haven't yes. watched, but everyone says I should watch because it's my life apparently. <laughs> so a very strange childhood, but also like although obviously it sounds very special, I think for me a lot of time it was quite isolating because mm. a lot of time you know I didn't really have kids like down the road as much as a lot of kids would have. Yeah, you had a lemur. <laughs> yeah, I just had yeah lemurs and penguins and whatnot. Yeah, that was kind of an odd one. But I think I've always just kind of had struggles with my sense of self worth, and I think a lot of it comes from who I saw. I saw my dad as kind of the, I think a lot of young boys see their dad or some kind of older male figure as their like person they're supposed to aim superhero. towards and aim yeah. to be. Yeah, that's superhero, mm. yeah. And my dad is one of the most hardworking people you'll ever meet and very tough in that he has two scars under both his eyebrows. Luckily, they're covered by the hair of his eyebrow. But from when he used to play rugby, because they'd split open every game, and he told me all these stories of how they'd split open and they'd just wax and Vaseline on, and then he'd carry on. And, God. you know, he, he, just, he, was, he was tough as nails. The good old days, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good old days, yeah. But he, so he was that kind of person. And I've never been that person. I'm very emotional, especially when I was a kid. I was scared of everything. I was so scared. I was terrified of the third Harry Potter movie when he turned into <laughs> when like it, a when werewolf. When he goes dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, proper freaked me out. So I wasn't that person. And I and I felt that very strongly. I felt that that meant that I was invalid, that I, you know, I wasn't worth anything. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't what I was supposed to be. So mm. to be honest with you, it sounds kind of sad, but it's hard to remember a time in my childhood where I wasn't struggling with some kind of mental health thing. I don't mm. think I was aware of it at the time. And maybe we mm. can talk about that later on. I used to think it was these kind of like physical pains, I guess. I used to just think I always had stomach aches and was always jittery and stuff. But yeah, it was always there for me. I want to set the scene for the listeners because as you've really brilliantly set out there, you have struggled with, you know, different mental health issue at any point in your childhood. So before we talk about your muscle dysmorphia, just tell me first about your love of rugby. As you mentioned, your dad was a big rugby player and how it initially shaped your identity in school life. 
Yeah, so as I said before, my dad was a big rugby player. And as I mentioned, I never felt like I was enough as a person and I needed to be like my dad. So rugby was kind of obvious choice. Yeah, a perfect way to prove that I am that. Not even to other people, but to myself. I, you know, I, I was so certain I wasn't that. I felt like I needed a chance to show it. So I got into rugby. I went through my growth spurt in puberty very early in life. So <laughs> I'm about 6'2", so I'm, I am pretty tall. But when I was in like my like 11, 12, I was probably about foot taller than everyone else in my school. I shot up really quick and then everyone kind of Keep calm, pass it to George. That's the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, I was really good because I was just massive. It felt great because of that. But at the same time, I still struggled with it because I remember the first time I played, someone poked me in the eye and I ran off crying because I didn't like it and then my dad convinced me to come back on and then I tackled someone and they got really hurt and they had to stop the game and then I cried because I thought I'd really hurt this person so I really wasn't like emulating the macho macho kind of stereotype that I wanted to at least at the time but the same thing over time it kind of it became my identity and that I I felt like as a man I needed to portray these certain messages and these certain ideals that I saw in my dad and rugby gave me a taste for it and then mm. I started to kind of I suppose grow from that so I'd see all the guys around me take tackles and pretend it didn't hurt even though it obviously did hurt so I was like oh so I have to pretend not to feel pain and and I kind of learned these messages over time and and rugby was all I did all I spoke about all I cared about because I was so attached to it as this is who I am. This is what I need to be. And this is what people will love me for. This is the mm. you know, only thing that I have that that actually adheres to what I feel like I'm supposed to be. I want to fast forward to a, a really big moment in your life, which was a spinal injury that you had, and it effectively stopped you playing rugby forever. So just take me back to that moment, how it happened, and how you felt when you were hospitalized and told by those doctors that really horrible news. Yeah, so I broke it during a match. And it wasn't even like a cool tackle or anything. It was a ruck for people who don't watch rugby. In rugby union, there's times where someone gets tackled to the ground and then all the players kind of push over the ball to try and win the ball for their opposition or for their team. And I was taught when you go into a ruck, if none of your players are in front of you, just hit it the same way you hit a tackle. So just smash yourself into it. And I did that and my back just started hurting. I got this sudden, very sharp pain. And then I think I went into shock or something because it started to dull down. And as I said, over the years of teaching myself what I was supposed to be, I thought this is a pain I need to ignore. So I actually mm. played on for five, 10 minutes. It's kind of a bit of a blur because I think I was very ill. It kind of, I think the shock was making me feel sick. And then I complained to the coach and the coach thought I was lying, thought I was just tired. <laughs> and he was like, you can do it, you can do it. And then I managed to finally convince him to let me come off. And I didn't actually go to hospital for a couple of days, I think. No, it was, yeah, just one day because that was a Sunday night when we played. And then I woke up the next day and it was a school day and I couldn't get out of bed because my back hurt so bad. And my dad thought I was trying to get out of school. So <laughs> he came into my room and like grabbed my arm and was like, you're going to school, like trying to pull me out of bed. And I started crying because it hurt so bad. And then he kind of was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then took me to hospital. We had like a couple conversations. Nothing really happened for a while. They just thought I had some kind of like back pain. And then eventually I managed to get a x-ray. They saw something and eventually managed to get an MRI scan, which is when they finally sat us down and said, that I'd broken my spine. And I just remember, I remember my dad's face. It was like a movie moment where it turned to me, just kind of turned over and just went, oh, I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> like, like, sorry for trying to pull you out of bed. And yeah, so then I remember it was a few months down the line because they didn't want to operate at first because they thought it might heal itself. And I was sat with the consultant talking about 
different options. And I think I, I was too scared to speak to the consultant directly, but I kind of whispered to my dad about wanting to play rugby. And my dad asked him and he said, oh, there's no way he's going to play rugby again. And I remember my heart sinking. It did feel like someone said your you're, life's you're not allowed to be yeah. yeah yeah your life's over you're not allowed to be you anymore that's kind of what it mm. felt like it was like you're not allowed to be you anymore george you've got to like come up with something else now and mm. you know it was everything to me it was who i was it was how i got people to like me and yeah i just felt like every bit of respect i'd managed to somehow gain i thought had just disappeared i use this quote when i interviewed a previous guest called leo win stanley who was involved in a really horrific car crash where he lost complete use of his right arm and i said was it a crisis of health but also a crisis of self is that how it felt to you in that moment I think it was almost entirely a crisis of self for me. Like, mm. I, I couldn't really give a shit about, especially at 13, like, I got a year off school to some degree. I thought that was great, you know? It, like, it obviously was a bad thing, and I wish I hadn't had that year off school. But at the time, I was kind of like, what? So I get to, like, lie down, watch TV, and not go to school. <laughs> like, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> Jackpot, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I was. T- they gave me, I was taking, like, yeah, multiple painkillers a few times a day. So I wasn't really feeling much pain if I didn't move too much. So it felt great. But the whole thing was, I was not seeing my friends for the, that whole time. The occasion they'd come over after school and stuff. But you know, when you're like 13, no one's that empathetic that they think, no. oh, we should probably go see George. <laughs> like people, people just go, oh, he'll be fine. We'll see him, we'll see him when he gets We'll back. see him in a year. <laughs> see you later, mate. Yeah, yeah. So, so I had like a few people who would come over occasionally, I think because their parents were- Their moms, yeah. To yeah. Be like, go see yeah, him. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he needs to see someone. <laughs> so I basically had to, it was about a year, the recovery, because I had to wait about six to eight months to see if it would heal. And they did loads of tests on me. And then they realized it wouldn't heal. So then they moved to the surgery where I've got pins and kind of like a metal bar in there. And then that took a few months to then recover from. So it took a whole year. And during that time, I barely moved, especially prior to the operation. I was pretty much just lay on the floor because the bed was too soft. So it hurt my back. So I just lay on the floor on the carpet with a pillow under my head. And, you know, what you get someone who can't move for presents or for like gifts and people come over. So people would just bring me food. I often was just kind of you know, emotional eating and just laying still. And I gained a lot of weight. I think I was close to like double my body mass by the time from like the start of that year to the end of the year. And when I went back to school, I don't think I was ever fully bullied. I don't think people kind of picked on me enough for me to class it as bullying. I suppose there's no real full definition of bullying, but people definitely treated me differently. And I got a sense that people were a bit freaked out by the way that I looked different. And I got a sense that people felt a bit awkward around me. I think because, Mm. you know, I'd been away for so long and whatnot. It's a long um, time so for just, kids, a year, like a long time. Yeah, yeah. I missed the whole of whole of year nine in high school. I think it was year nine. And yeah, so I missed a big old chunk. We did first school, middle school and high school, which I know is a bit weird for some some people. It was the first year of high school for us. So it was a big year as well. Like it was this, mm. you know, everyone was meeting people from other middle schools and um, I just completely missed that. And yeah, so it, it was a really, really, really big point for me i'd gone back and suddenly i felt like i'd lost all the respect i had before but you know before then i was in this middle school and everyone knew who i was i was friends with everyone and i didn't feel great about myself inside but at least outwardly i felt you okay had status. and then suddenly yeah yeah and then suddenly i go into this new school i look so different people are treating me differently and you know it was very tough I know it must have been really tough at the time, mate, especially because, you know, the loss in the social hierarchy, you know, the rugby lads are usually the high status ones are popular with the girls. Teachers might even treat them more favorably subconsciously or consciously. They're not bullied. 
And now you're in this completely new state of mind. However, now you reflect. So for example, when I was in university, a first year student experienced a spinal injury like yourself during a collapsed scrum, and he was actually paralyzed from the waist down. When you hear stories like that, and now you're older, do you almost feel a little bit lucky that it was just rugby you could no longer do? Honestly, obviously, yeah, the people who have stories like that are, I feel incredibly sorry for because the stuff that I went through, it would have been, I imagine, even harder and even more difficult. I've always felt lucky in regards to that. I think even as a kid, because I do remember them telling me because your spinal cord runs about three quarters of the way down your actual spine. And I broke the vertebrae that was below that. So the doctor figured that if it was the vertebrae above, there was a chance I could have damaged the spinal cord. But I was, I was very, I was very lucky in my unluckiness, <laughs> in that it was the right, it was the right one to do. So yeah, I feel very grateful that I didn't have to kind of go through that struggle. Um, and and also, I'm, I think I'm not necessarily a believer of everything happens for a reason, but I believe that that mentality is good. <laughs> I believe that it's good to believe that everything happens for a reason, whether I actually believe it or not. And so many things of you know, my life trajectory changed so much and it's led to what I'm doing now. And I really like what I'm doing now. So I'm glad it happened in that sense. I want to fast forward to when your identity crisis really came to a fore. So you can no longer play rugby. You've lost your identity at that stage of life. You need a new place to belong, a new purpose. You know, all these three pillars that I describe as really being key for men and boys to be able to thrive, especially if they have three of them. If they have one, they can kind of get by. If they have two, they can definitely succeed. And if they have three, they can thrive. So you found weightlifting and exercise. Now, for some of my listeners, that might be a really positive thing. And it certainly probably was at the start. However, how did it go from initially satisfying the gap to becoming unhealthy and obsessive? Yeah. So this is it is something, and you've rightly said, a lot of your listeners will know this as a positive thing. And it's something that I, I think gets a lot of people's backs up when I talk about the negative sides of exercise for me and the negative sides of the air quotes, health and fitness movement. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I feel like it was a transition for me. It's really tough because obviously weightlifting and, and watching what I ate was very positive because as with everyone, you get the endorphins, which are really great for your mental health. And obviously looking after your, you know, we're learning more about gut microbiome and, and all these kind of things that affect your mental health from the way that you eat. So I was feeling more positive in that sense. But for me, what I got most out of weightlifting and watching what I ate was the same that I got from rugby. It was those identity markers, the kind of typical like masculine identity markers, the ideas of dedication and hard work and yeah, being kind of self-assured and yeah, I wanted to look tough and I wanted to be strong and, and all these kind of ideas that it was less so the effect it had on my body and more the effect it had on people's views of me. So mm. I wanted to look a certain way and I wanted to act a certain way so that other people would see it and then assume that I was these things. I, I think if you asked me at the time if that's what I was doing, I would say no. I'd say I, and I, I probably believed that I wanted to just be a bodybuilder and wanted to do whatever. But what I actually got, the times when I felt the most secure in who I was and the behaviors I was doing was when other people were complimenting me, especially when, you know, in school, when some of the girls would say that they fancied me or like whatever. (laughs) Nothing nothing better than female validation, mate. As I say, I try (laughs) and get the boys to not base their life on it. (laughs) The attraction side is really interesting. It's something I'm thinking about in my PhD at the moment to some degree. So I think it's something that certainly links with muscle dysmorphia to some degree because the muscular body ideal is something that's really common in men and actually there's some really interesting research from a a book that's behind me right now called the adonis complex where they basically i'll 
kind of sum it up in a nice way, but they basically asked men what they thought the body ideal was for women. So what, what did women think, what did women want men to look like? And then they asked women what they actually wanted men to look like. And the difference was like they basically said that the statistical difference was significant in that the men said that it was much more muscular and much more lean than what the women actually said it, it was. It seems to be to some degree that we're competing somewhat with our own ideals or our own projection of what, or what we think women want or, um, you know. Women are probably doing that as well, mate, to be honest as well. No, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everything does. I think, I, think, mm. I think that's the most human thing, isn't it? We project our thoughts and feelings onto other people. I, I think that's kind of almost the definition of being human to some Mm. degree is what we do very much i gave the definition in the intro mate but just as well for the listeners give me the definition of muscle dysmorphia which you went on to develop which is still undiagnosed and some listeners might know it by the slang term bigorexia and how did it impact your physical and mental health yeah so Honestly, I could talk about the definition of muscle dysmorphia for about four hours because it's very contentious, but I'll give the kind of sticker on the fridge example, which is that it's a clinically diagnosable condition that is a specifier for body dysmorphic disorder. So if a clinician wants to diagnose someone with muscle dysmorphia, they must first see that that person has body dysmorphic disorder, which is in a nutshell, you perceive some kind of flaw with your body that causes a significant negative effect on your mental health. And normally that flaw is very slight or non-existent to other people. And then when that flaw is about muscularity, which is both trying to get really big, but also trying to get really lean or one or the other, then you could class that as muscle dysmorphia. And muscle dysmorphia yeah, is, for me, as I said, it linked so much to my identity as a man. And, and it seems in the literature that has been published, a lot of men who have very high drive for muscle talk about a very similar story to myself, where they felt that they weren't masculine enough compared to some older male figure in their life. Sometimes it's a brother, sometimes it's a dad, whatever. And certain life events happened that confirmed to them that they weren't as far as they were concerned. So then they took on muscle building behaviors as a way to prove it. Because it's a great way of showing that you can endure pain. It's a great way of showing that you're dedicated. It's a great way of showing that you're taking up space. And there's an indicator that you can be aggressive if you're big and muscular. And It's a protection tool as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm. So I think as men, we're often told that we need to be these things. And I personally think it's very limiting in in some sense. Some people it's great, but I think whenever you tell someone they're supposed to be something, I think that becomes a, a problem to some degree. Yeah. So for me, it became that I was attached to what my muscle dysmorphia told me I could get from it. And if I looked this way, if I acted this way, then people would love me, people would respect me. And, and that was the main thing for me. You spoke about male influences there. And I want to move on to a topic which is you know, a cultural topic sometimes, if you, if you can call it that, which is social media. And you spoke on the Lad Bible Roundtable, which we're going to talk about in depth later in the pod, about how you were influenced negatively by a lot of male personal trainers or influencers on social media. And this hyperbolized physical image, which you've referred to a lot, that they portrayed that very few men can actually achieve and sustain consistently. So how did they shape your perception of yourself at that time? Yeah, social media is a really interesting one. I know we're going to talk about it a bit more now. I do think to some degree it's a scapegoat. I think we all just kind of blame it. And I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's a um, tool, isn't I, it? It's positive and negative, depending on how you use it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it shapes itself, especially with AI and stuff, it shapes itself around what we want and what we ask for. So it's kind of tough to blame it for something that, you know, a lot of the time it's just doing what it's supposed to do. You know, it's kind of tough. But yeah, the people that kind of shaped my self-image, obviously there's the classic 
you know, I was seeing a lot of very muscular bodies. And even when, you know, in real life, you don't see those bodies, we spend so much time on our phones, and you're getting this constant, they call it super stimuli, I believe, in the kind of psychological world, which is this idea of kind of excessive examples of something that you value or you want. And for some reason, I think it's quite evolutionary psychology. I don't know how grounded it is in other sciences. But this idea that if something is an excessive version of what we value, then we're more drawn to it. I would kind of look at these huge bodybuilders and I accepted that that was possible for me and something that I should try and do. And a big factor for me as well as these kind of influences with their body type was the way that they would speak because they spoke to everything that I was worried about. They spoke so much about how you have to be man enough to do these things. And they spoke about how through dedication and hard work, you could be anything you want to be. All these messages that are things that I was worried about personally. Mm, and generic and, and life keep... coach stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and it spoke to me so much and, and I felt like they realized what I was struggling with and were giving me the solution. So I, I I just kind of followed it. And and one of the key ones that I think really made it hard for me, and I think makes it hard for a lot of people who listen to this, especially men, because I think it's often tailored towards men, is the messaging around that other people won't understand. So many of these videos told me that, you know, when you're in the gym and you're working like this and you're eating like this and you're grinding, as they would always say, so hard, other people aren't going to get it. Other people aren't going to understand that this is what you need to do. This You're doing this for them, all that kind of stuff. So they're going to try and stop you, but you should ignore them. And that meant that when people were genuinely concerned for me, I was prepared to be like, oh, well, this is just one of those fucking people that wants me to stop so that then I fail. So you're just you're, a hater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was so ready. I'd built that wall because I've been prepared by all these videos that if anyone tells me that what I'm doing is unhealthy or wrong or whatever, I know that they're just a hater and that I need to just ignore them. And, and that was a real issue for me. You said to me off air that the number of likes I got on a picture directly linked to how good of a person I was that week. And as we spoke about, validation can be a poison. Did you feel like social media had poisoned you or it was just a vehicle for you to enact how you were mentally ill at the time mm. i do think that i think that social media poison is an interesting word to use i do think that social media kind of seeps into us and yes. affects our bodily functions the way that a poison mm. would so i suppose you could use a poison or a virus as a, as a something like that term. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, it's, an, it's, an, it's a good it's a good word to use so I, I do think it affected me in that sense similarly in the way that it does for a lot of people but, you know, a poison doesn't give you the positives that social media does. You know, if a poison doesn't give you the ability to express yourself and communicate with other people. And, Connection. You know, so it, it, it's the reason we're yeah. chatting. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the big issues of social media, I suppose, is that it's a poison that also is kind of like a... You know, it's a poison that gives you these benefits as well. So, you know, if, if it was straight up just made us feel like crap, no one would go on it. And that's part of the nuance that I think no one talks about with social media. Everyone, as I said before, I, I see it as a scapegoat. People just say, oh, social media, social media. And we just kind of use it as this thing. It's like, it's a problem. But there's so much more nuance in that. Like, if it really was that horrible and that bad for us, why are we all on it? Like, why are we all on it for a crazy amount of hours a day? There's obviously more to it than that. And I feel like people there's kind of two camps we either have the discussion about how it's a good thing and how you know it'll help you grow your business and all this kind of stuff and all we have the discussion about how it's a bad thing and how it's ruining your mental health and, and it's very rare we combine those two before we move on to my next topic a lot of young men right now 
and I see it in my gym. I go to a bodybuilder gym, so I see a lot of the kids coming in and some of them annoy the fuck out of me, but you have to give them some corrections and tell them to behave themselves and not do five people on a machine and do five sets <laughs> each and etc. But a lot of them are clearly in there to either look good for girls or to improve themselves. And I do think sometimes like, why are you here, lad? Just go out and play footy. Like you're 15, 14 years old. Like you don't need to be going in the gym at like eight o'clock at night with all the rest of us like grinders and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But there are a lot of lads who are clearly struggling with muscle dysmorphia or MD. Some of them are getting surgeries. You know, we look at six pack installments or leg lengtheners and all this dark shit. And some are taking steroids at younger and younger ages. What is your perspective on this right now? And were you ever tempted to use steroids? Yeah, so I'll answer the steroid question first. I was definitely tempted. I definitely considered Mm. it. I think I was lucky that a few years into my kind of weightlifting journey, when I first really started thinking about steroids, I started working during the time off uni. I started working at a shop in my local town and I became really good friends with a guy who trained in a gym and I started training with him and he'd taken pretty much everything you could think of taking. And he had all these horror stories about how horrible it made him feel. And, and he had a really bad reaction to so many drugs that it immediately just made me think, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was, God. <laughs> yeah. And, but that like, I think that's a great example of the way that we can help with steroids because I did a podcast recently with a researcher called Kyle Ganson, Dr. Kyle Ganson, who researches into steroids quite a lot. He's a bit of a hero of mine. And we were talking in that about, I think one of the issues with steroids and the way we talk about steroids is we don't add, similar with, with social media, we're very like black or white thinking, you know, it's, it's either really great or really shit and steroids are in the shit category and everyone hates on it and there's often an idea of if you're on steroids you it must just be ego driven or you must just be a cheater you just don't want to do it the hard way or you know and it's all these kind of negative connotations but for some some people they genuinely feel like they need to do it some people apparently seem to think they do it safely but the more that we ostracize it the more that we push it away just for the record i don't think they do actually do it safely i just think they they think they do or they got (laughs) incredibly lucky and somehow found this perfect dose for them But the more that we ostracize them, the more that we just push these drugs underground and get all these people who claim that they're very knowledgeable about steroids, even though they're not researchers. A lot of these people that I see who claim that they know about steroids and and are giving advice to other people, they've taken steroids for themselves a lot and they found the right balance for them. And then they tell everyone that this is what works, but without realizing that their body is so different to everyone else's body, the same way that if you ate the same food that I ate, we wouldn't have the same impact on our body. It's the same with these steroids. And they're basically talking as if this is gospel. And to some degree, it's kind of like a, a pseudo intellectual take <laughs> because it was a pseudo cult. Yeah. They really have tested it. They really have tried it. And it's kind of like the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? You know, where you, when you learn a little bit, you get really confident and then you realize how much you don't know as you learn a bit more. And I think I think it's like that so that, that's a that's a thing with steroids i think i think what we really need to be doing is educating people and getting people who are in the gym and people like my friends who i've really looked up to in the gym telling people that all the dangers because then people actually listen to them the problem is that the people who do talk about the dangers only talk about the dangers and they're always like clinicians or clinicians who don't lift so they're always like well you don't know what you're talking about because you don't lift which is silly but, but yeah in regards to like the bodybuilding movement and all the kind of people in the gym i do worry about it it's something that I struggle with. And I think it comes down, me personally, I think it comes down to issues with how young boys feel that they can adhere to masculinity and and this idea that they feel like they, for whatever reason, they feel like they aren't 
masculine enough or they feel like they need to adhere to these very specific masculine traits and they're told that by whoever it is they take on these behaviors as a way to prove that and i think i think a big part of it is attraction like you say to women but also to kind of any gender we, we see it in gay populations oh massively a lot of, yeah, yeah yeah a lot of a lot of men from the studies that people have done talk about how because gay men are often seen as more feminine they feel like they have to prove their masculinity so i need to be super butch to prove that i'm still a man and you know yeah i mean um, those lads are at the top of the food chain in the uh, gay dating hierarchy and there's a whole other podcast you could do about that yeah yeah so there's all these kind of nuances to it that i think make it difficult to kind of attribute to and the problem is as well is a lot of these people who are struggling are mixed in with all the people who aren't and who are just thriving and weightlifting and so it's really hard to find it and then that leads to you know a lot of men one of the reasons why you started this podcast you know a lot of men don't talk about their mental health a lot of men don't understand their mental health you know there's a thing called normative alexithymia but it's basically a condition that talks about how people fail to learn how to understand and articulate their emotions and a lot of men tend to struggle with this and we tend to describe our mental health issues as physical health issues so we think that like me when i had anxiety and depression i thought it was a stomach ache and just jitters you know i didn't really see it as a mental health issue and i think there's probably a lot of men who are struggling with muscle dysmorphia who have heard about how great weightlifting is for their mental health and they go to the gym and they no longer feel horrendous anymore. So they go, oh, so that just must be normal. Like everyone else just feels horrendous all the time. And then when they go to the gym, they feel a bit better. And they're thinking that's normal. They're thinking that's healthy because they haven't articulated. They haven't learned to express their emotions. Yeah, it does worry me. And it's all about kind of educating and, and trying to move forward with that. But yeah, I agree with you that it is very frustrating when you see people like that in the gym. And, and I definitely was really annoying when I was in the gym. I was screaming and throwing things and all that kind of jazz. Put your um, weights back, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put my weights back. I was that guy who was like, like a, you know, like a whale doing like the whale song when I was pushing and yeah, unnecessary screaming. I want to move on to something which formed a key part of your MD, mate, which is failure. And you said that every time you'd fail a workout or not follow your very strict diet, which was probably a bit unhealthy at the time, actually, that lack of self-worth came flooding back. Mm. How did that feel? Yeah, you know... It really was the term failure because in order to fail, you have to have the kind of the example of the succession, you know, the, what it is to succeed. And what I was attempting to succeed at was... Was bad. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was bad because it was these extreme exercise mm. and, and diets. And also it was rooted in, I want to succeed at being like a good enough person or being someone that deserves to be here, to be alive, to be, be loved, to be whatever, liked. And so when I did, quote unquote, fail at a workout, what was at stake for me wasn't a pump or muscle growth necessarily. It was being a good enough person, being someone that people could like and being someone that deserved to, to exist as far as mm, I, was, proving I was yourself. Concerned. Yeah. yeah. Every workout was a, an attempt to prove yourself. And if you failed at that, you weren't proving yourself. So I imagine that was really hard. Yeah, exactly. And and the conditions for what made a good workout grew over time as well, which was mm. which was tough. You know, it had to be more weight, it had to be more effort, and my diet had to be more strict. You know, oh, I managed to do that last week, so it mustn't have been hard enough. So I need to make sure it's harder next week. I was always destined to fail because eventually I was going to hit something I couldn't do. That's what happened. I was destined to fail and I, I failed so many times and for so long that it just got too much for me. And maybe we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in a really quick second, mate. But before we do, your story is very similar to our mutual friend, Danny Bowman, absolutely fantastic man, in that you both played rugby. You both had a form of BDD. 
and both became self-imposed agoraphobes basically for a period of time. Mm. And you did this because you felt ashamed, like you said, that people would see you looking how you were, whatever that was in your head. What mm. was your relationship like with the mirror? Yeah, obviously I, I can't speak for Danny's relationship with the, the mirror, but I imagine it was similar to me, at least from everyone I speak to has, and I see, I see Danny at events and stuff and we always speak, but I don't know, I don't know his story like inside and out, but a, a lot of people that I do speak to have issues with body image stuff tend to say that they share similar feelings to what I had, which was, I think for, you know, we described the mirror checking as a part of the compulsion of BDD and these compulsive behaviors and a compulsion, the way I describe it to people, it's a need to do something. And, and the, a kind it's of a ritual, a, it's like OCD in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, it, a body dysmorphic disorder is very heavily linked to, to OCD. Some people claim it might be the same thing, same with eating disorders as well. But yeah, checking the mirror was this compulsion for me. And a really good way of kind of putting in some imagery behind that is, if I ask you to hold your breath for as long as you possibly can, you'll hold it for a while. You might go 30 seconds, might go a minute, may go longer if you're really good at it. Eventually, your brain will tell you that you need to take a breath. Otherwise, you're going to die. And there's this kind of fear and panic of this needs to happen. Otherwise, something bad's going to happen. You take your breath and you feel a bit better. Whereas in actual fact, you could have gone a few more seconds at least. You could have gone maybe a minute longer for a lot of people. You know, we can last a lot longer holding our breath usually than our brain tells us. That feeling of fear, otherwise something terrible is going to happen, is the feeling that drives compulsions, at least it did for me. It wasn't a sense of like, oh, I should probably check my body in the mirror because it'd be good for me and I, I might I might look and see something I want to see, etc. It was, if I don't check my body in the mirror right now, something terrible is going to happen to me. There was an immediate sense of fear and anxiety and I need to just double check this, otherwise something bad's going to happen. And I think a lot of people can get that, maybe a sense of that feeling with when you scroll on Instagram on your phone or insert social media, when you're sat there alone with your thoughts, a lot of us will just grab our phone and start swiping because you want to just fill that void. There's a sense of anxiety there that you just need to fill with swiping. It's kind of the same thing. So I think people can get a, a sense of that. So for me, the mirror was, it was more of a, I think whether I was conscious of it at the time or not, I don't know, but it was more of a an attempt to reduce the symptoms that I was feeling. I felt down, I felt anxious. And for some reason, my brain thought that if I find an angle in that mirror or find something in that mirror, I can at least get, it wasn't even necessarily that I could get a positive outcome. It was just that I could get an outcome. I didn't need to be worried about how I felt about myself or how I looked and that kind of stuff. I could just know, I could know that it was crap. And at least that was a definite answer, or I could know that it was okay today. And at least that was a definite answer. And I would spend hours in the mirror uh, at times just trying to find that definite answer. You know, sometimes I couldn't find it. I couldn't find that sensation. It's kind of like, I don't know if anyone listening or maybe even yourself have ever had, because I, I had obviously had this BDD and, and difficulties with the eating disorder as well. And, and they're all linked to OCD. And I used to have kind of OCD-like tics when I was a kid where I had yes. to like tap things three times. And you get that mm. sense of relief when you do it. And you don't really know what it is. Sometimes you're just tapping things away and, and suddenly you just feel it. And you're like, oh, I've done it. That's kind of what I was searching for when looking in the mirror. So yeah, it was something that I, I really needed to do a lot and, and often resulted in me feeling worse about myself. The thing with mirror checking, it's something I say to a lot of people who struggle with it is there's two results to checking yourself in the mirror. And this is something my counselor taught me. You either feel worse about yourself because you find the thing that you hate or you feel better for that moment, but you confirm to yourself that checking the mirror was the way to fix your mental health. So then you do it more. 
So you're just increasing the likelihood that you're going to have that moment where you feel terrible. And yeah, so it's something I would reduce it at all means necessary if I was you. (laughs) We've come to the most difficult part of the pod, mate, which is that your MD got to the point where you felt suicidal and you were actually making plans to do it and take your own life. If you could, just take me back to that day, if you can, how you felt, the George we meet at this point, and how one very special and important friend stopped you from doing it. Yeah, I, I sometimes get emotional when I explain this. So no, I'm not apologizing, but just, uh, I guess, a warning. Take your time, pal. <clears throat> yeah, I uh, I was in second year at uni, and as I mentioned before, I had these behaviors had been kind of growing in the expectation or the goal that I needed to do in order to not feel like a failure and not feel useless. So I'd been failing over and over again. And often when I'd fail, I'd kind of, I'd be so ashamed of myself that I would lock myself away in my room and not speak to anyone, not want to see anyone and often kind of binge eat on food. So I'd order food in and just eat. And I'd failed enough times and had these stretches of feeling ashamed and yeah, it was terrible about myself for long enough that I came to the conclusion that, that I just, I didn't deserve to be alive anymore. And that I genuinely felt that the world would be a better place if I wasn't there. It's a false selflessness of suicide, isn't it? That's how I describe it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Explain that to me. What do you, what do you mean? So when you are in this suicidal state, especially for men, I feel, I can't obviously speak for women, but you feel that what you've just said there, you feel that taking your own life is the most selfless thing you can do for the people around you Mm. because you feel that the world will be better off without you in it. Yeah, I really like that. There's a theory of suicide, which the name's escaping me now. There's kind of three prongs to it, but one is a sense of burdensomeness, which is Mm -hmm. uh, kind of speaks to this, the idea that I'm a burden to everyone around me, therefore if I died, it would help other people. So that's the kind of what you're speaking to there. Um, and yeah, I, I completely agree. I felt like I was doing everyone a favor if I wasn't there anymore. And I, I think at the time I was aware that people might be a bit sad for a bit. Um, if I'm honest, and I think this is something that a lot of people who struggle with suicide say, I kind of reveled in, and this is so like kind of horrible thought, but it's, it's, it's where I was, if I'm honest. I, I, I kind of relished in the idea that people would ha- at least have like a few like a week or a few days where they missed me or that they like thought positively Bro, about me. Because I, I was the same man I was the same I was the same yeah and I think it's something a lot of people share because we're so certain mm. that everyone doesn't like us or everyone thinks we're this burden or whatever it is that you fantasize about that idea that maybe mm. there's gonna be maybe there'll be a day where everyone will think fond of me and that'll be that's enough yeah it's uh, yeah it's <clears throat> It's really, uh, I'm getting a bit like kind of emotional uh, talking about it. But yeah, I I was so certain that was a positive thing. And yeah, so I got to the point where I planned how I was going to do it. But I planned how I was going to do it. And I basically got to the day where I was going to do it. And, you know, know, I'll never know if I actually was going to go through with it. But I I was pretty certain. And somehow uh, one of my friends, Cara from uni during my undergrad we used to talk about mental health she was one of the people that I kind of spoke to the most about it she hadn't heard from me for like two or three weeks because I'd been I locked myself away and I wasn't speaking to anyone so she just texted me being like asking me how I was and I just kind of put like a generic answer back 
And then she said, I'm coming over. And she just literally just came to my house and didn't ask me if I, if I was even there. She Sometimes you need to do that for people. In no, crisis. no. Yeah, it was, it was great. It, like, honestly, it was, she saved my life as far as I'm aware. So yeah, I think you, I think it's a really good thing to do. And yeah, she came round and I answered the door and we sat in the lounge and I just kind of broke down in front of her. And I don't think I told her what I was going to do that day. I didn't go to that extent, but I just told her how horrible I felt and how terrible yeah, I was feeling. And she was someone who said to me, and I, I trusted her so much. She said, you need to speak to somebody else. You need to like find someone that you can mm. talk to. And and that's when I, you know, originally reached out to my, my parents to tell them about it. So they were aware and then, yeah, managed to find a counselor who was local to me. And then that's when my kind of journey started. Mm. Have you ever spoken to Cara about that day in the years since? And what would you say to her if she was listening? Um... We still speak. We're kind of like, we live quite far away from each other now, so it's difficult to speak too mm. much, but we still do speak. Uh, I don't think I've ever spoke to her about it um, to the level I'd like to. So I think I, I, mm. I, I, really, like I, I really want to, and I should do. But yeah, I'll say it now, and I have already said to her multiple times, I just thank you for forcing yourself into my, <laughs> like, into my house, because... Um, yeah, for people listening, you know, when I say force, you know, maybe don't break down the door, but just turning up and just like, cause, because I think mm. for a lot of us, and uh, maybe Freddie, you're the same here, you know, I was so convinced that people didn't give a shit about me. Like people just feigned it. People faked caring about me. But if you turn up at my door, you know, so I'd tell you I was fine. And I'd tell you like, oh, don't worry about it. It was almost like a test because I was, I was like, all I have to do is tell them not to worry about it. And they obviously don't care enough. So Most people drop off, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, but, and that to me was confirmation that I was right. that They didn't actually care about me. They were just saying it because they're supposed to say it but yeah she turned up at my door and what more proof could i have that she cared i'm getting emotional mm. um and yeah i i can't stress enough that that is a huge thing for i think if you're worried about someone and you haven't seen them and you don't you're hearing from them go like turn up at their door and just say i'm outside they, they might still tell you to go away but at, you know at least you've tried then and at least mm. you've you know, I think that's the that's the kind of yeah, it's a really big thing. So yeah, biggest thing I would say is thank you because I imagine that took bravery. You know, that is a bit. It might feel a bit awkward to go to someone's door, mm. if, especially if they turn you away. And she didn't live that close to me. You know, she was across the city from me. So yeah, just a massive thank you. Mm. I think the two big principles here, especially when it comes to supporting men in a crisis, is a action speak louder than words, and I think b sometimes ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, just do it, and then you can say, "I'm I'm sorry that I've kind of uh, yeah just turned up," but just yeah, do it if you can. Yeah, I really like that. I want to talk about recovery now because mm. it didn't start well because of a not so great GP appointment that didn't allow you to get formally diagnosed. Just tell my listeners what happened here and how you made those positive steps to where you are now, mate. Yeah, so the GP appointment it's kind of an amalgamation. There's one that I often share but there was there were several kind of appointments with doctors and, and you know, i now actually i now through my mind stuff i train nhs services and doctors about these kind of things so you are being trying, the change bro uh, i'm trying yeah <laughs> trying to be be the person who helps with this but one of the issues with issues around muscularity if you have some kind of concern around being muscular is you end up being muscular and the way society sees muscularity is as the epitome of health if you've got a six pack and you've got veins on your arms, then people just assume you're fine. 
And, you know, I would go to doctors and this one GP appointment, I went to the doctor and I told him that I was concerned about my eating and my exercise and whatnot. If I remember rightly, it was, it was a while ago, but he looked at my like notes on the screen and it said, he kind of lent in and said, oh, it says something here about you having some kind of like, you might have like an eating disorder or something, but obviously you don't. And then he kind of like flexed his arm at me, like he kind of and like pointed his bicep. Was like, yeah, you know, you're all right. And I, I like we both laughed because I was like, yeah, of course I don't have like an issue with eating or body image because I don't look like what people assume those people would look like. And obviously later on, I realized that you can still have those those issues, but in a muscular body or even trying to become more muscular. Mm. So you know that was a huge barrier for me to, for getting help. I do think that is the reason why myself and a lot of people who have issues around muscularity don't get diagnosed it's so hard to find someone who's diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia they're so rare and i think that's a big part of it is when you look at them we're told that they're the example of thriving and yeah it makes it a a real difficulty we're going to talk about this in depth later in the pod mate but you did an interview with miles nazaire who made his fame from made in chelsea for his channel 4 documentary obsessed with my muscles and they show pictures of you in air quotes peak physical condition you're most Mm. shredded so to speak but we both know what you were deeply unhappy and i always say that and this is not my quote but a picture is a window into the soul and, and the eyes are a window into the soul as well. When you look at those pictures now, what do you see and who do you see? When I look at those pictures, I see someone who is clinging on the kind of last thread. But I also see someone who is so confused because... There's one in particular that media people tend to like using, which is one of me kind of like in my pants in the kitchen. And at my uni, they had like a fashion show thing, like a fashion show. and they Catwalk asked, thing. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I did like the underwear walk. So I, I like kind of like tried to make sure I looked a certain way for that underwear walk. And that, at least that you didn't do the in-betweeners episode one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do that one, luckily. No balls were seen in the, in the making of that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was the night before and me and a friend of mine who I lived with at the time, she had like a voucher to do like a uh, spray tan and we were all doing spray tans because the lights didn't kind of make you like like bodybuilders do. Mm. That was like after we'd done the spray tan and we were, we were taking pictures. And I remember at the time my housemates were saying like, you look so good, like you look insane, you look really, really great. And and I had people like I was walking through town and people who'd seen me were like, oh, you look so lean, like in your t-shirt compared to what you normally look. And people would give me all these compliments and it was everything I'd ever wanted. This was it. It's everything I felt like I'd, I'd ever wanted. You know, all these women at the uni were talking to me and I you know, I felt like lots of people- The validation is mad. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like so many people were attracted to me and, and it was everything that, that I wanted. And I still- felt horrendous as soon as i went into my bedroom i just felt empty and i just i remember being so confused and i remember crying pretty much crying myself to sleep that night it's funny because there's a video on my phone that i have so i'll kind of keep them because i I feel like it reminds me of where i was and i feel like it helps me with my work because sometimes when i Mm. feel demotivated i look back at the old me and it reminds me of how i felt and i go there's still people who are feeling that way and there's a video of that night when i'm in the mirror and i'm kind of posing and and flexing and i'm crazy lean and i'm I'm, i have that body type that i wanted and 
in the video, I'm kind of pulling a weird face. And I remember as soon as I stopped that video, I started crying and I pretty much didn't stop until I fell asleep. And I don't even know what I felt. I think it felt like, um, I don't really know the word for it. Maybe you were at the top of the mountain. You were like, the mountain isn't what I thought it was. That, that was literally what I was just about yeah. to say. That's so funny. That, um, <laughs> I was giving yeah, you time it, to do it, mate. But I thought maybe you weren't <laughs> no, thinking about it. <laughs> no, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's so funny. That, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. It felt like I'd reached the peak of the mountain and then looked around and saw all the other higher mountains around yeah. me. And I was like, oh, so like all this work I've been doing it just felt pointless. I was like, yeah. like it's it like finding Nemo when they get out of the fish tank. No work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then I, <laughs> I guess my brain started then thinking like, okay, so I just need to be bigger. I need to be leaner. I need to, you know, needs to be more and just kind of moved on to that. But yeah, it was, when I look back at those pictures, I just see someone clinging on to something that I am terrified. So many other men and, and I think anyone are clinging on to at the moment, which is that if I look a certain way, if I make people feel a certain way about me, then I'll feel fine. And then you get there and you just don't. I want to talk about your experience of therapy now. So how did it help your recovery and what positive tools did it give you? And and how did you reconcile, as we spoke off air, these two versions of yourself, good George and bad George? Yeah. So therapy for me, when I first started my counseling, my counselor explained it to me that I seem to have this like good George and bad George, these two versions of myself. The good George was the one that, you know, as I've been speaking about throughout this podcast, these kind of like typical masculine values that I wanted to portray to people. So that was me when I was hitting the gym all the time, when I was sticking to my diet, even when I was getting good grades, I wanted to be seen as intelligence and all these kind of things. And then bad George was when I did anything else. And good George, the conditions of good George was everything. You had to have every single piece of the puzzle for me to feel like I was the good George. So I need to look a certain way. I need to be sticking to every single part of that. I need to be successful in every mode of my life. And then the bad George was any part of that just immediately fell me into that bad George and just feeling like the worst person in the world and all these negative traits that I hated about myself. And yeah, working with my therapist, one of the first things he had me do was sharing some of those things that I thought were the bad George and part of that was feeling bad like feeling down was part of that for me like I felt like as the person I wanted to be I had to always be positive I had to always be yeah kind of grinding and, and ready for anything and letting things roll off my back so we started off with if someone asked me how I was instead of just saying oh I'm Salmi how are you I would then instead say, oh, actually, I'm feeling a bit stressed or I'm feeling a bit down or just a little thing and then moving on. And then over time, that almost became like I almost got like addicted to the sense of like, oh, they don't hate me when I show this other side of me. Like like it was quite addicting and it's it's quite like a joyous moment for me of and I think a really positive moment for me with like people don't hate me if I show them who I actually am. There was such a revelation for me and it seems so obvious, but I was so certain that as soon as people found out these things about me that I thought were bad, that they would just get rid of me and just never speak to me again, but they didn't. And that was amazing. And yeah, it just kind of grew over there. As I shared those parts of myself, my counselor, Ed, used to say, I became this kind of like third person, this other George that was hovering over the two. The more I got integrated into him this mid george the higher he got and they was kind of and they these good george and bad george just kind of merged into one and i realized that oh this is just george you know these things i like about myself and these things that i don't like about myself are just me and people will accept me if i just show them the whole thing that sounds like it was this linear thing that just i just got better and better and better there was definitely moments where i struggled and kind of fell back on it and but eventually i got to that place where i you know i feel like i'm i'm there now yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult to stay there sometimes. 
It's funny, as you said that, I just thought of a bodybuilding analogy when Arnie's in pumping iron. He goes, show them, show them the whole thing when he's, when he's trying to coach the <laughs> yeah, kids yeah, how to do yeah. some muscles. <laughs> That's uh, Franco Colombo, isn't it, I think? Or yeah. I think it is, yeah. So the little guys, yeah. they come in, they hide, did you know? Show them, show them yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. That's a great Arnie impression. That's a, like, it's not my fantastic. first time. It's not my first time. A fantastic Arnie impression. You also spoke about building your self-esteem pyramid, mate. Just explain that concept for me and what makes up the foundation the middle and the top. Hopefully you didn't build it using any mental slaves. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my God, <laughs> that was a horrendous joke. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm on PC on this podcast, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It was from a podcast whose, the name is now escaping me of the, the person, but a psychologist I, I did a podcast with, she did a lot of work with athletes and she actually worked with the um, Saltman brothers, you know, the oh, yeah. two Scottish guys. The she deepest voices I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, yeah I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ, man. Yeah, it so scared she, me how deep their voices were. <laughs> <laughs> she works with those two and she does a lot of work to, with athletes. And one of the things she says is that a lot of athletes and I think a lot of gym goers as well, this speaks to build their identity or their meaning on a pillar which is, you know, mm. the foundation is this one foundation, which is that I eat right and I exercise right and I look a certain way like old me. And then you build everything else on top. But when those things aren't right, everything collapses. She spoke about how you should build a pyramid instead where you have all these kind of bricks as a foundation. And then if one goes, you know, you've got still got the rest of your life on top. And that's something that I think I did kind of before I realized that that was a thing. And yeah, the things that I, I suppose are built on are things that I value in life. And obviously I'm doing my PhD at the moment and I, I work as a researcher on, on a few different other projects as well. And knowledge is a big value for me. So not even just being knowledgeable or wanting to be smart, but the process of knowledge and you're know, learning things and um, oh it's addictive in itself mate isn't it i've got 45 yeah. books on my amazon item list at any time <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah like like generating knowledge is a really nice feeling and, and something that i really value in my life and exercise is still in there you know when we talk about body image there are several kind of theories around it but one of them that we often talk about is evaluation and investment and the investment side of body images, how much does the way that you look impact on you or how much does it link into your identity as a, as a worthy human being? And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to look a certain way or striving to look after your body or these kind of things. It's, it's when it becomes your be all and end all. I work very hard to try and, you know, still want to work on my body and, and I tend to work on performance more than looking a certain way but the world that we live in is very aesthetic so you know I still struggle with that sometimes but I try and make sure that the brick in my pyramid that is body related is more so about the kind of joy of progression and the joy of working on something and, and working on myself and, and health more than anything else but yeah so there's, there's kind of knowledge and, and body and then there's my friends and family my partner these relationships that I accrue and I'm quite a despite doing all like the media things I do I am very introverted I'm kind of a learned extrovert I taught myself how to speak <laughs> to people and uh, yeah. I'm the other way around. I've got to teach myself to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think there's, yeah, there's positives and, and negatives to both of them. My partner, she's very, she's very extroverted, and the problem is, if, I think for extroverts, it's very hard to teach yourself to be an introvert because and you're told lot to be quiet as well if you're loud and an extrovert yeah. as well in your life. I mean, if you're introverts, are always told to speak up, and extroverts are always told to shut up. Like, yeah, you know, there's no balance. 
Yeah. And, and as an introvert, I think it, it's not easy, but I think it's easier to teach yourself to just kind of copy what you see extroverts do and, and like learn how to articulate yourself and, and to just feign confidence for a bit. And, and you can, and then eventually you do feel a bit more confident. Like I do kind of feel confident in, in speaking now because I forced myself to do it so many times. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So first of all, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? What's it taught me about myself? I think it's taught me how complicated I am and how complicated we all are. I think as a kid, I was so certain, and I, I think I spoke about this in the um, in the Lad Bible video. I was so certain that everyone else had it figured out. I was so certain that everyone around me just knew how life worked, and I was the one person who didn't. And the mental health journey made me realize how complicated we are partially because it got me into psychology and, and understanding how people speak and, and the research around it and just being like, well, everyone's so complicated and we like we barely know anything, even though we've been working on this for years. And recognizing that was a, a big thing for me. It's definitely made me realize how harsh I am on myself and that self-awareness that's come with it. And I still am far too hard on myself in, in several different ways, especially with my PhD. It's a, it's something that I'm, I still kind of struggle with. You'll um, get better, bro. From this podcast, mate, we'll make it a mission. <laughs> I'm working on it. And I, they, I think the first step is being self-aware of it. And mm. um, you know, that self-awareness is something I, I used to say all the time, but I do think that there's a blessing to struggling with mental health in that it forces you to generate that self-awareness that a lot of people don't need like people who don't struggle with it or, or haven't struggled with it as someone who has and always has it i almost find it hard to believe that some people i have friends who are genuinely just like i get a bit sad but like i just i'm fine and i'm just like i, I can't even like comprehend <laughs> that it just seems in, in, incredible to me I think struggling with that forces you to have to learn about yourself and understand why you feel that way. And and I think that's a real blessing because, mm. yeah, I, I have so much more insight into how I'm feeling and how I'm thinking now, which is a real positive for me. Positive wise, you know, I'm, I'm a very dedicated person. I'm a very creative person. I'm very passionate. And I think sometimes I'm too passionate, as I'm, I'm sure you're now aware of, as the a podcast host who's going to have to edit all my ramblings. I get very excited about my topic. And I think everyone cares about it as much as I do. And then I end up, this is, this is me holding back. I'm trying to be like, I've got my media <laughs> head on. You should speak to me normally. I just go off on one about all these different philosophers and researchers and all sorts. It taught me a lot. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the, the things I went through. And as a final question before we move on, mate, if you could go back and talk to the George who had just suffered that horrific spinal cord injury and was told he would never play rugby again, the George who was in the depths of that muscle dysmorphia, wondering whether to take his own life, or the George who was thinking about starting Maya Minds, but maybe unsure about taking that next step, what would you say to him, knowing what you do now? I don't think there's anything necessarily I could say that would convince him. And I'm putting that caveat in because I think if people are listening and they think that what I'm about to say is like a, is something they should say to other people, I, I think it's hard to convince someone. And we're all aware of that, I think. But I think the main, the main message I even want to get to myself now is 
stop worrying about things so much. I really wish I could just get rid of the worry because there was a, and when I first started my own minds, I remember seeing a quote from someone who was like some like business leader or something on like LinkedIn, which I, LinkedIn is, I have a very love hate relationship. It's a different with. sort of cesspool to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there was a quote on LinkedIn that I kind of took on and really helped me, which was, I forget who it was who said it, but when an opportunity comes your way, say yes first and then figure out how to do it later. And for me, that was a huge step for me because you know, the first time I was asked to do a talk as Maya Minds, and I didn't really know the subject that well, but I said I did and then like learned, <laughs> learned about it as like, I like, approached it. And these kind of things, I think it teaches you that you can do so much more than you think you can. And things do tend to just work themselves out. And I'm very fortunate to be able to say that because I know for some people it, it doesn't. But I think life has a way of kind of fitting into place as long as you keep go in and keep uh, I sound like one of those fucking motivational speakers now but you know what I mean like in the least cheesy way possible if I could make it uncheesy genuinely just yeah all I would say to myself is if you keep going and don't stop it's gonna get better just keep focusing on that day this too shall pass as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and whatnot I, I really think that's a good message we've talked all about your mental health journey mate Let's talk about how you've turned that big negative into a massive, massive positive through this advocacy journey. And I want to start with Maya Minds because it's your baby. So tell me how and why you came up with the idea, the work you do with it, and what you wanted to achieve with it too. Yeah, so Maya Minds is a kind of interesting story. Originally, it started as I mentioned before about in therapy, how I started sharing about who I was and these kind of things. And one of the things I eventually started sharing about was how I felt about food and my body and exercise and the negative relationships I had with all three. And a lot of my friends were gym friends or athletes. And I was shocked by how many of them told me they had similar worries and similar concerns and felt the same way, either in one of the three or a combination of them. And on social media and on and the way we talk in the gym, it's all so positive about health and fitness and about sport. Everyone's talking about how it's so good for your mental health and how we're all getting better and we're all thriving. And people do talk about like iron therapy and, and people make jokes about how, you know, the only reason we do this is because we're all nuts and we all take on weightlifting because we've all got some kind of traumatic background. <laughs> There's some justification to that. No, right? yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. If I didn't have the gym, I would go yeah. a little bit nuts. So we, we, you know, we, we all talk about the fact that we do it for those reasons but it's always in the context of and it's helping we're here because right. we struggle yeah. and because we're here we're feeling better but i wasn't better you know i was doing it and it, if anything i was getting worse mm. i was so obsessed with it and so um, yeah kind of compulsively doing it and i just never heard about that ever like not ever ever so my mind originally was a an idea that I came up with. Myo is from the Greek term for muscle and minds, obviously minds. So it's this idea of people who kind of exercised and people who were into sport or whatever. It was an Instagram account where people could share their story about the kind of more nuanced ideas of sport and exercise and mental health. And it wasn't to like bash on it or say that it was bad because there's still really positive stuff. And a lot of the stories talk about the positives, but it was just to give a more whole rounded view and people could do that anonymously or they could put their picture and name on it. Kind of in my university, originally it was just a few of my friends and then it became like a thing in my uni, like not the whole uni, it wasn't that big, but you know, a lot of people started to hear about it and, and <laughs> I started getting people messaging me saying they wanted to do it and it kind of grew from there. 
And yeah, I was so interested in it that I started reading about it and during my master's degree, I did my master's in exercise nutrition. So more like quantitative, like science lab stuff. But about two months in, my mind really started kind of taking off. I started the website and I started getting stories from all that interesting, cool, like celebrity or the status people to some degree, like really, really cool people. And I was like, this is so cool. I got really interested in it. So I started reading about psychology and about these kind of things and eating disorders and whatnot. And I think a lot of my lecturers for my nutrition master didn't like me because I was always asking about eating disorders and they're like, we don't give a shit about that. And yeah, whatever. So I started to learn about this stuff and started really getting interested in muscle dysmorphia because it was something I resonated with. And there's so few people reading into muscle dysmorphia and, and knowing about and talking about it mm. that I relatively quickly became like the guy for it. It started to be a thing where you know, I was speaking to clinicians and stuff and I was getting emails from other clinicians saying, hey, I spoke to Dr x y and z and they said if i want to know about muscle dysmorphia i should speak to you and i was like really like you were a thought yeah leader, but, right? uh, so I, <laughs> but like it was so accidental it was purely just because especially in the uk there was so few people at least talking about it publicly mm. and i was doing it on my minds and speaking to people and and that's when i started the podcast as well so speaking to these researchers and people with lived experience and I spoke to an ex professional bodybuilder who won mr universe i've spoken to researchers and experts and all sorts of people on all sorts of different topics and um, it was really really fun and, and really interesting and it kind of just an excuse for me to talk to people i wanted to talk to to be honest and Much yeah like as i developed <laughs> yeah but yeah it's a great it's a perfect excuse to just be like just hey shit, you want to you know? <laughs> yeah if you speak to someone and say can we have a chat they may be like yeah and in like a year's time if you say hey do you want to record it and then you know you can get some clout then and then way more way more yeah up for it and i am too just for the record you know so i, I, you know, I get it we're all ego driven to some degree yeah i started doing these podcasts and, and doing those kind of things and then because i started getting a name for myself as someone who knew about it there's a charity that I was volunteering at called First Steps ED that do advice around eating disorders and, and body dysmorphia and stuff. And, and they're now actually partnered with my PhD. And I started teaching um, some courses for them about compulsive exercise, so like negative relationships with exercise and that kind of stuff and helped design one of their training courses. And then from there, I kind of went to a conference around that and met some researchers and I became part of different research groups and quite a few great ones. Actually, I'm part of a group called Hungry for Words, which is about considering male eating disorders and we use like artistic forms of stuff and we actually recently won an award at nottingham university big shout out to professor heike bartle and una foy and dr una foy and all sorts of wonderful people in that group we made an animation about exercise relationships with food uh, eating disorders and that kind of stuff and yeah some really, really cool stuff so started doing those kind of things and yeah and then my mind just kind of became this community of people that follow me and listen to the podcast and yeah i have conversations with quite frequently a lot of them are clinicians a lot of them are people People with lived experience and i just yeah my big kind of mission with my minds although it doesn't say it on the website because i'm terrible at updating it but the main like aim for me really is that i want to work on developing knowledge so research and an understanding of this area and then disseminating it so making sure other people know about it because people just mm. don't including mm. doctors and clinicians the amount of times i go to eating disorder services or other healthcare services and i, I say do you ever have patients who have issues around like muscularity and then they'll say no 
and then I'll explain the symptoms, and then they'll go, "Oh shit, yeah, <laughs> we have like three people who who are like that." Now you mention it, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and like, but I get it because no, just no one talks about it. So yeah, I really want to try and get it more in the kind of nomenclature and and you know making sure people are aware of it. And that's where things like this Channel Four documentary and whatnot help so much that we'll, we spoke about a little bit before, and we'll talk about. So yeah, that's the kind of journey with Maya Minds. And now my PhD is taking the forefront at the moment, but it's very linked to Maya Minds. So I still do the occasional podcast and I, I do things like this where I talk about um, what my kind of journey and, and the research that I'm doing and stuff. So that's interesting because I thought Maya Minds was a play on words in your own name rather than Mayo, but there you go. People do suggest that sometimes, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe it's worked both ways. There you go. When it comes to spotting the red flags of MD, mate, what are some examples that you can give the listeners that can help them with a loved one or a friend or a brother or whoever it is, male or female, actually, to be fair, so they can catch those people if they do exhibit it and help them? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'll boost what you mentioned with it being men, women, any gender, in that there's actually there's a research recently looking at adolescents in Australia, and they actually found that the muscle dysmorphia symptomology was statistically the same in boys and girls. So actually, it seems in upcoming generations, it actually seems to be equal amounts of muscularity concerns, which might be something to do with the messaging, like the Fitspiration messaging towards girls and women, mm. um, you know, around more muscular bodies being seen on social media and stuff. Is but, that a lot like a lot to do with them with like slim thick and stuff like that, more body types, whereas they want the larger breasts, larger buttocks, stuff like that. Potentially, yeah. There's... Men, it's just the six packs and the big muscles, yeah. Yeah, so it can be, yeah, it might be that um, the musculature that, um, I don't think we've got enough research to say for certain, but it might be that the the muscle that women and girls are talking about is glutes and Waist, legs and, legs. and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But I also think it, it could be potentially, you know, it's obviously a fantastic thing that women's sport is becoming bigger and, mm -hmm. and more watched but it might be that the idols for mm. young girls are now more athletic body types so it might be just trying to match them mm. to some degree there's good sides and bad sides to everything isn't there but yeah some of the signs obviously there's the classic ones which is excessive levels of weightlifting and um, excessive supplement taking but the main kind of aspect of that is what are they like when they don't do it that's the thing you need to look out for and do they ever not do it there's going to be important moments in their life where they're sick or they've got a friend's party or a wedding or a funeral or whatever Some, something's going to come up that means that they can't do it that day how do they feel when they can't or are they getting up at like 3 a.m. to do it? Like I used to do that kind of stuff. Some people that is just dedication, but it's definitely a sign if you're willing to put yourself under that level of discomfort just for one workout when you've got something so important is it's definitely a sign of it. So muscle dysmorphia, technically you shouldn't have there's according to this criteria which are again contentious and i don't really like them but they technically say that you can't have issues with disordered eating but there is a thing called muscularity oriented disordered eating mode which talks about these kind of behaviors that people tend to do which are disordered which are the excessive restriction followed by overconsumption. So people call it the bulk and cut diet quite often. These like planned binge meals, the cheat meals that everyone does, cheat days, those kind of things. And and you know, just to say, just because people do these things doesn't mean you have a disorder, but they are disordered inherently in that, you know, they're not something that you would naturally do if someone hadn't told you to do it 
in this way and they tend to cause some kind of discomfort but you do it anyway and in that sense it's disordered by kind of definition but that i also do think it's kind of like you know it's like putting your hand in the crocodile's mouth you're behaving in a way that can lead to some issues because of the rigidity and the kind of stress that comes with it and often the linking of these behaviors to like moral worth that we see online and see in the media it's never that sticking to this diet is just like good for your health it's always it's usually sticking to this diet is done by people who are dedicated and people who are you know it's always you're better than other people because you do this mm. that's a problem because then if i stop doing it does that make me worse than other people like that's the thing that tends to encroach into people so looking out for these diet patterns looking out for these exercise patterns but the main thing is that I can't stress enough is that that significant negative distress when it goes off, when it stops. So when something gets in the way, how are they reacting? That's a really big thing. So then looking for those like reclusion things. So when people like hide away, like I did and, and those kind of things. So yeah, those are the things I would say, look out for. I spoke about this with Danny in his part two episode, but when it comes to the stigma around vanity and MD, how do we break that and show people that these aren't lads who are just simply, well, they could be, but they might exclusively be just peacocking or projecting their narcissism, but actually men who are perhaps doing rituals or compulsive behaviours and in danger of becoming quite dangerously unwell? Yes, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned narcissism. I know a lot, a lot of people kind of read about it now and talk about it. It's something I don't see people talking about as much and is linked to muscle dysmorphia. There's a couple of papers that have linked it. Is There are two different types of narcissism you may have heard of, but in case people don't know, there's grandiose narcissism, which is the one that everyone tends to think of when you talk about narcissism, which is basically a, this kind of overwhelming feeling that you are the shit and nothing anyone can main say character syndrome. change yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah main character syndrome yeah it's that that classic and it leads to these behaviors of always making the conversation about you and always talking about your accomplishments constantly making things about you because all you care about is you to some degree and then there's vulnerable narcissism which is really heavily correlated with muscle dysmorphia when grandiose isn't and vulnerable narcissism is basically the idea that you deep down believe that you're not good enough so you take on narcissistic behaviors as a way to try and move away from that mm. or try and get away from it. Mask it. So if, if yeah. I talk mm. about my accomplishments all the time, make every conversation about how great I am, then other people might think I'm good, even though really I think I'm not. And I'm insecure and, and, that, and that, I'm that vulnerable. Is, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what's linked to muscle dysmorphia. So a lot of the people who have these, these issues... They act like a prick and I, I acted like it. I, I was constantly talking about myself. I was, everything was about me and that kind of way. But deep down, it is that it's a sense that they're not good enough. You know, strategy wise, I think it's it's education and people sharing their story and those kind of things. But, you know, to some degree, I get it because if I listened to old me, it would have been really hard to be empathetic towards them. It's very hard to be empathetic towards someone who is expressing these these narcissistic behaviors. But the thing that I always lean on is like for my story, I hope I'm less annoying now <laughs> because I've worked on it and because I've kind of worked on myself and, and generated this self-awareness. And we can do that for those people as well. They are acting in these ways that you might not like, but if we are empathetic and caring and, and look for ways to help them, we will be able to reduce yeah. that. Mm. Yeah, and patient. Yeah, it's a, a great example. Let's talk about the, the Channel 4 documentary, mate. I have got many problems with this trend of commissioning reality TV stars for mental health documentaries. But aside from my perspective on that, how big a moment was it for you to be in the show to share your story? And just tell me about some of the stories that you heard through watching it too. I really enjoyed it. And it was a big moment for me in that... 
you know, it was fun for one, I suppose. I've done a few different TV things before, but I've not done like a documentary style thing before. So it was fun for one. And my thought process during the whole thing was that we're going to, you know, there's so many people going to watch this show that have never heard of this and, and are now going to be able to learn about it and, and understand it more. I did have a fear during it that it was going to be, you know, mediaized as everything is. You know, you're talking about the kind of trap of caveats before that people fall into. You know, I think in in research and in understanding things, caveats are so important because everything's so complicated, but the media doesn't like complicating things. They want short, snappy things. So I was worried that that was going to happen. I do think they did a pretty good job of mm. sharing the important parts of muscle dysmorphia. If I made it the way I wanted it, it would have been about 12 hours. I was going to say. You know, very boring for, very boring for most people. So I, yeah, I understand the necessary nature of, of that. I really enjoyed being part of it. And Miles was a really good guy when I was speaking to him and he was honest. And I think you know, the thing I was frustrated about to some degree was I think both of us shared most of the important stuff, like some really good stuff when the cameras Off, went away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was frustrated about because I was like, oh, that's that could have been a really good thing for people to see every media thing i've ever done that's been edited i always think they take out stuff same with the lad bible thing the stuff that they cut was stuff that i was really mm. proud about saying there's always something i'm like i'm so glad i said that but people need to hear that and then it's always the thing always the way mate isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah but yeah so yeah overall I, I enjoyed it what struck me watching the documentary and i agree it was a it was a great documentary to be fair was how lonely these men's lives were and like you said earlier in the pod about locking yourself away for three weeks at a time when you're in that really depressed state even when they were projecting perfection they were lonely so one of the lads interviewed mm -hmm. said that he didn't have time for relationships and even when he's on dates he is paranoid that they are judging him from his social media pictures i guess because he had probably a large social media following i don't even know plus they weren't even happy with their bodies at physical peak, which comes back to the point you made about being at the top of the mountain and the mountain wasn't worth it anymore. Is that at the mm. heart of the illness, do you think? The loneliness? Yeah. I think so, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think yes and no, to add the caveat as always. <laughs> so again, looking at the suicide theory that I mentioned before with the, the burdensomeness, one of the other of the three is belongingness. So a lack of sense of belongingness. And it's really interesting that actually with people, and I'm not really sure why this is, but with people who have, I have my theories, which I'll explain. <laughs> people who have muscle dysmorphia, the sense of belongingness doesn't seem to attribute to their link to suicide. The link with suicide with muscle dysmorphia is really high. Like even seems even higher than eating disorders, which is already really high. Mm. So it, it, there's a really strong link there, but belongingness doesn't seem to link. And I wonder if it's that, those messages that I was talking about before with people are just going to try and make you quit. No one else will understand, you know, the term of like freak that in bodybuilding world being called a freak is like a term. A good term thing. Of yeah. It's like in rugby. Yeah, it's an absolute great, yeah. freak, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a kind of taught idea of not belonging and that's really good. I think to some degree, there's a sense of like feeling like you have achieved something when you don't belong because you're told you're not supposed to but then i think the negative consequences of that still adhere when you're lonely and you don't speak to people so i think it's a, it seems to be i think it's complicated because i think to one degree you feel great that you don't belong because you're supposed to be a freak apparently but in the other side you and i think maybe it's when people start to realize like in the documentary obviously they were speaking to people who were aware that they had concerns with this stuff i think once you've reached that point then you look back and go 
oh, I was so mm. lonely. But I think when you're in it, there's a sense of pride, even though you still makes you feel bad. There's a sense of pride with it. So I think it's complicated. So mm. the short answer is yes, I do think it's a part of it, but I think it's complicated. It's yeah. not just an overwhelming sense of loneliness. In the documentary, we spoke earlier about surgeries and steroids. Miles went as far as getting surgery to remove a piece of his chest he was insecure about, right? Which seems absolutely bonkers to me on the surface. But now speaking to you for the last hour and a half, I can get a sense of what the illness is. And what I get a sense of is that, could that have been you if you hadn't got better? With the surgery? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard. I'm not, it's hypothetical, um... I know. No, 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 but again, it's, it's you know, if, I'm, if I'm being fully honest, and this is in no way a, a bash on people who have done the surgery, but it's, an, it's a thing with steroids as well, mm. that there's like caveats to muscle dysmorphia where some people, you you convince yourself, the same way we do everything, you rationalize why something is a good decision, why something is the right thing to do. When I was really struggling, I was, I think, especially because I decided not to take steroids, I was so obsessed with, there was a, and there's a whole world of this in like natural bodybuilding and stuff where people talk about you do it the proper way or you do it the way that you're Clean. supposed yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah, doing it this like, you know, without surgeries, without steroids and stuff. So I feel like to some degree, I probably wouldn't. But at the same time, I think from what I remember of Miles, when I spoke to him about it, that was less so that it was something that he could change with lifting. It was something that he was insecure about that wouldn't have changed mm. no matter what exercise and stuff he did. So it was just something. So that reminds me of like BDD in, in general of, you know, a perceived flaw that might seem slight to other people, other people like barely notice it. But to you, it's that it's every, every time you take your shirt off, it's all you think about and all you see. And he regretted and so it after in that got regard, it as well. Yeah. So in in that regard, I could I could see myself doing it. If there were certain things in my body that I felt that way about then I think I could, if and if I had enough money to as well, because obviously those surgeries cost insane amounts, I imagine. Yeah, I think I might, may have done then. Before we move on, when you meet him in that West London bougie cafe, Miles says he wants <laughs> to order a large chicken, and you say you just want a croissant for breakfast. In that moment, did you see in Miles the person you used to be, reflect on where you are now, maybe want to help him a little bit? Yeah, there were, you know, again, I, I don't know Miles well enough, but from the conversations we had, I shared a lot. I kind of resonated a lot with what he was talking about and how he was speaking to the point where I do think he was at least struggling to some degree with what I had previously. And yeah, that was a kind of like funny moment. It was also a really awkward moment. You know, people who, who haven't done TV stuff, it's, you know, th there was about four cameras in that tiny little cafe and we were just told to walk in and like pretend that we were ordering stuff. We did get those coffees, but yeah, it's, it's just something that you have to do. So it's, it's always, it's always a bit awkward. So I wasn't really thinking massively at the time, but I do think that that idea of, you know, it was obviously, it was like the leanest meat there and it was had salad and all that kind of stuff. And it was surrounded by all these like treats and things that you actually want to eat or like, you know, you'd probably prefer to eat. And, you know, so there's a sense there of the kind of rigidity to your eating. I didn't ask Miles enough about it, but the reasons why you choose that chicken is the, is the important thing. Is he choosing it because he's like, oh, if I eat those other things, my body might not look the same, which probably is the case, mm. but I, I didn't know enough. But yeah, it's definitely something that I would have done in the past. So I, yeah, I, I see my past self in that. And of course I wanted to help that soon. You know, I've dedicated my life to helping people with that to some degree. So there's a level of empathy there. And, and that, that continued when we, went on and you know I learned more about how he was feeling mm. let's reflect on your advocacy journey mate so first of all what's been your proudest achievement doing my own minds or this wider advocacy journey too 
The proudest achievement is is a real tough one. I I want to say I have it behind me somewhere. I have <laughs> several copies of it because it was cool. I was in Men's Health magazine in a piece about muscle dysmorphia in the actual magazine in in the US and in the UK. Wow. So I have a copy of um, both of them, and that was really cool. I think the reason I'm so proud of that one is because I feel like I, I infiltrated into a, a yes. source of a lot of the issues. You know, you're behind enemy um, lines so, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, which is really cool, and 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 I've seen since that Men's Health has started doing more stuff about body image and, and that kind of thing for men which is really great i like to think i had at least some <laughs> level of uh, sway in them doing that which is which i'm very proud of i'm also going to steal danny's thing where he spoke about his personal achievement as well which is my phd and i'm only a year into mine but it is a, a massive thing and it's so difficult and you know takes so much time and so much thought but it's something i've wanted to do for a long time mm. and yeah, very proud. Of, and I think Maya Minds was a big reason why I got it because, you know, they'd seen the work that I've been doing. And so I think, yeah, it helped me with that as well. Well, maybe in the future, maybe when you both complete your PhDs, we can have you back on for a Holy Trinity pod. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good to me. As a final question before we move on, make some conscious of time. Similar question as the first topic. What has this advocacy journey and Maya Minds taught you about yourself? Hmm. I guess it's taught me that I'm stubborn. Um, <laughs> Definitely stubborn because when I first started my minds, even, you know, I won't name any names, but even some of the like eating disordery people that I spoke to were at times relatively dismissive. Really? Of what I was trying to do. Like in what you sense? Skeptical about the impact you could have or what? Skeptical. And, and there's still a lot of people now who are, who are like that. Skeptical that the muscularity side is important or is needs to be spoken about um, in regards what to- What a shame, mate. Stuff. I'm sorry you went through that. Yeah, but you know, if any, like I said, I think it taught me my stubbornness because if anything, it it made me want to be like, oh, I'm going to prove myself like, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that did motivate me to some degree to go into this world more. And yeah, I am fortunate that I was right because research has come out now, and a lot of people have now started being like, yeah, actually, this muscularity stuff is important. But there are still a lot of people who who question it and. Yeah, like I said, I with my minds, I go to NHS services and train clinicians in this stuff sometimes, and I get clinicians during those seminars, during those things, who question it and think that what I'm saying isn't isn't right, and it's always an interesting topic. And yeah, so people still are hesitant to it, and I think it part you know there's several reasons why that is, and we've spoken about a lot of them during this podcast, but I think a lot of it is that prior to 2016, less than 1% of the eating disorder research, and there was thousands of articles, included men. Um, so a ridiculous, you know, our entire understanding of the evidence of eating disorders has been built on women. And women have historically been told that they should have a thin body. So a lot of their experiences are towards becoming thin. So the way we understand eating disorders and these body image issues is in people who are trying to become thin. So, you know, I think a lot of the foundations of people's knowledge are based on that. So when I come in talking about muscle and trying to get bigger, it can be difficult to accept that and, and think about that. We've come to our final topic of conversation, George. I've absolutely loved the discussion. And it's a quick fire chat we have about our mental health, which I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I would say I'm okay. PhD is, makes it difficult, but yeah. Scale out of 10? Seven. I'll take that. I'll take seven. I'll yeah. Take seven. Nice round number. My next question is, what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I think 21. 
was around okay. when I first started my counsellor then. And was it a gradual process or a eureka moment? There was a eureka moment in that when my friend came to see me and I realised that I was considering suicide and I thought, shit, like I need I need to get help. So it was a eureka moment in that case. But then learning that took took gradual process. You've just told me about the first conversation with your mental health. So we'll skip over that one and we'll go into my next question, which is triggers. So what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, sensation, a smell, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I definitely haven't figured them all out. I think I tailor my social media around like the kind of people that I want to see and the kind of messages I want to see but I'm getting in a better place now with that as well so I I now have started kind of drip feeding just so I can learn about what the culture is like in those areas so Mm -hmm. social media is definitely one in in certain areas I would also say mirror checking I try and stay away from mirrors as often as I can because I know it's a slippery slope for me you ain't going to a fun fair anytime soon. No. (laughs) It makes it hard in gyms. Gyms are covered in mirrors. Yeah, 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 it makes it tough. My next question is, conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Journaling, big one for me. Getting your thoughts onto paper or into your phone or whatever it is, is massive. And it helps you kind of formalize what you're thinking and and pick out the holes that are in there. I also, I write poems, a bit of a strange one, but yeah, I write poetry. That tends to help me express how I feel and it sounds ironic but it shouldn't because that's kind of the whole message but i also go to the gym and exercising is a big part of it for me but doing it in the way that's fun and isn't rigid and compulsive Mm. and feeling like i need to do it i know you love your books and you've mentioned a few already so what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related doesn't exclusively have to be oh my god you can give a couple if you want yeah that's that (laughs) i'm just gonna look behind me to make me think um oh good one that I really, I really like philosophy and i'm gonna say man's search for meaning by victor oh, frankl seminal yeah seminal fantastic yeah. book and yeah his thoughts around existential philosophy mm. are foundational for me like just yeah really really great and then i will also say it's not really about mental health but i've spoken so much about richard reeves his of boys and men book i think is, yeah. is was really great for me just yeah felt very nuanced and i think helped me feel more empathy for people and i, I think i think that feeling more empathetic towards other people makes me feel more empathetic towards myself so love that man love that If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? I said it before, but I'm going to go with this too shall pass. Okay. Speaking of love, what do you love about yourself? I love how inquisitive I am. I love how empathetic I am because I think there's a real lack of empathy in this world. And I love, trying to think of the way to sum this up, I love my ability to recognize when I need to take care of myself because that's something it took me a long time to learn and that's mm. self-awareness. Self-care self-awareness. Self-care awareness. Yeah, yeah. self-care awareness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it took me a long time to learn that and I'm still, it's still something that I struggle with from time to time but it's a It's a process, thing. bro. We all have to get better at it, you know. It's not yeah. perfect. George, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've got one more question left and it's a broad one. You can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, all body builds, all body masses, feel comfortable and safe 
in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. I can't sum it up more than logistically, maybe not a great answer, but whatever way we can get people to be more empathetic is the ultimate goal for me. And I think getting people to share their stories is a big part of that. But I also think working policy and protocol in healthcare services and organizations that state that people need to be empathetic towards people's opinions and thoughts and mm. and things that they struggle with because not because they are necessarily good opinions or or not but because they're telling them that their opinion is bad doesn't help find nuanced opinions in, in everyone nuance is key without empathy it's very hard to find that george has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege you are an absolute legend of a bloke doing such amazing work for my minds and just everything you've done in the last 10 years. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, bro. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big, massive thank you to George for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links to where you can find out more about the amazing work George does with Maya Minds and follow George on social media in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk and give any amount that you can. Literally every penny helps when it comes to keeping vent going and the podcast or you can make a one-off donation to our gofundme or you can go to our link tree that's linktr.ee slash vent help uk or one word to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support us here at vent we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent (laughs) 